<laughs> so a teenage boy is getting ready to take his girlfriend to the prom, and he knows there's a bunch of things he needs to take care of. So first he goes to the tuxedo shop to rent a tux, but there's a long tuxedo line at the shop and it takes forever. Next, he knows he has to get some flowers, so he goes to the flower shop, but there's a long flower line, and that takes forever, but eventually he gets the flowers. Then he heads out to rent a limo. Unfortunately, there's a large limo line at the rental office, but he's patient and he gets the job done. Finally, the day of the prom comes. The two are dancing happily, and his girlfriend's having a great time. When the song is over, she asks him to get her some punch, so he heads over to the punch table, and there's no punchline. That was pretty bad. That's pretty bad. I get it. Uh, it's pretty bad. Um, but it, it, it does kind of, uh, I think, beautifully capture this point. Jesus, like high watermark of his ministry, everybody's super excited. This guy is amazing. Here he comes. Hosanna, save us, David's ancestor. Uh, he gets into the temple and he looks around and he's like, well, it's getting kind of late. I think I'll just go back to bed. And he leaves, right? There's, there's, there's no punchline to the story. It's really, really strange. Uh, and th- think about, you know, the, the significance of the temple for the Jewish people. So, uh, at this time, the temple is, you know, that one place you go to encounter God. It's where you have to go to be forgiven of your sins. It's where all sacrifice takes place. It's also, in many ways, kind of the central bank of the nation. It is certainly the political center of the nation, and all the religious leadership is always there. It, it is as important a place as you can be. So, if you were going to design like a really, really big moment for Jesus. This would be it, right? He walks triumphantly into Jerusalem, arrives triumphantly into Jerusalem on the back of a donkey, calling to mind some prophecies from Zechariah, and he walks into the center of Jerusalem, and he walks into the temple, the center of Jewish identity and religion, and he's like, I don't know, it's kind of late, I'm going to go home. And he just, there's just no punchline. It just ends. What kind of deliverance is this? Jesus is here to deliver the people. I mean, He says, deliver us from evil. What kind of deliverance is this? He just shows up, looks around, and leaves. Actually, I think Jesus acts with great intentionality. Uh, We're going to see in a moment what kind of deliverance this is. But I'm reminded of this passage in Malachi uh, where God says, see, I am sending my messenger to prepare the way before me, and the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to His temple, the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Indeed, He is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of His coming, and who can stand when He appears? For He is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. All the people of Israel, and certainly Jesus' disciples, have one idea of the kind of deliverance they want Jesus to bring. And this is perfect. It's, it's um, Passover week. It's the big moment where God delivered uh, Israel from Egypt. Now He's going to deliver them from the Roman Empire. And Jesus is not about that. Jesus is about a different kind of deliverance. So He, he ruins the moment. He goes back home. The next day, uh, he shows up, and we get um, two really weird stories the next day, um, the fig tree and the temple, okay? Now, um, we've had this conversation before. This is what we call a sandwich story, right? A sandwich story is where Mark takes 
two ideas, and he puts one in the middle of the other to make sense of it. Remember, um, for example, when Jesus is going to heal Jairus' daughter, and he meets Jairus, and he says, my daughter's dying, and he goes with him, and then on the way, there's the woman who's bleeding, and she touches him, and he heals her. Then they finish the story, and they go to Jairus' daughter, and he raises her from the dead, right? And, And what we said was that middle story is designed to make sense of the story around it, right? So here we have the story of the fig tree around this mill story of the temple. So let's talk about the temple first. We'll come back to the fig tree. So Jesus enters the temple on His second day after sort of tamping down expectations, and instead of beginning a revolution, He starts wrecking the joint. Right? I mean, he starts turning over tables, and he starts uh, kicking out people that are buying and selling. He won't let people even carry things across um, the, the outside temple space. Uh, and then he says, my house is supposed to be a house of prayer for all peoples, but you've made it a den of robbers. So, most of us have read this passage in the past and said, ah, Jesus is upset because of the commercialization that's happening, right? They're, they're making money. You shouldn't buy and sell things in the church, and you shouldn't make money in the church, and um, they're probably, there's some grift going on, maybe some overcharging, and, and that's got to be what Jesus is upset about. But it's really not. So, let me tell you why that's not the problem, and then we'll try to get to the heart of it. Um, briefly, um, this is Passover week, one of the great pilgrimage festivals where every male Jew is expected to make the journey to Jerusalem to worship God. That might be a 25-minute journey or a 25-day journey. It could take like weeks for you to get to Jerusalem, right? There's no, you know, Delta Airlines. If you're coming from Rome, if you're coming from Gaul, it's a long journey, okay? When, when you get there, you are expected to offer sacrifices. That's the whole point. Well, it's really hard to bring your goat from Gaul to Jerusalem, right? So what you do is you go to Jerusalem, you bring money, you buy a goat, you sacrifice the goat, right? This is essential to the process, right? You can't do worship in the temple if you can't sacrifice animals and you can't bring your animals from home. You got to buy them there. Jesus doesn't just drive out the people making money. If He did that, maybe we'd say, oh, maybe they're overcharging. He drives out the people that are buying things as well, right? All these people that came to worship God, He kicks them out. And He's not just dealing with the money changers. He won't let people carry things through the temple. This is a really weird moment, okay? So, um, I want to help explain what Jesus is really upset about because, guys, Jesus is really upset. And we've got to let Jesus do it, and we're going to let Jesus explain it um, by reading the, the passages He quotes, okay? So, He quotes two passages. My house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations comes from Isaiah 56. And in Isaiah 56, we get this beautiful passage of the um, inclusive nature of God's home. Um, Isaiah 56, 3, do not, let the foreigner be, do not let the foreigner join to the Lord say, the Lord will surely separate me from His people. Do not let the eunuch say, I am just a dry tree. For thus says the Lord, to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths, to those who choose the things that please me and hold fast to my covenant, I will give in my house and within my walls a monument and a name better than sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. And the foreigners who join themselves to the Lord to minister to Him, to love the name of the Lord and to be His servants, all who keep the Sabbath and do not profane it and hold fast to my covenant, these I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer, their burnt offerings and their sacrifices 
sacrifices will be accepted on my altar, for my house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations. Here's the first thing Jesus is upset about. Kind of an us-them thing going on with the Israelites. So, uh, we said before that the temple is the center of Jewish identity. It is um, not intended to be that. It is intended to be the place where everybody gets to come and meet with God. And the Jews are intended to be uh, this covenant people who are blessed to be a blessing to others. But they have begun to say, hey, this is kind of our thing and not your thing. You guys stay out. They actually, in the temple, there's a little wall. It's about this high. It goes all the way around um, the outer courtyard of the temple. And it says, if you are not Jewish and you walk past this line, we will kill you. It says it in a whole bunch of different languages, so you can't possibly miss it. And the expectation was, hey, only Jews get to come past this line and start getting close to the presence of God. And I think Jesus is saying, hey, this idea of the temple being the center of your identity, I kind of hate it. I kind of hate it. You've kind of missed the whole point. Okay, then Jesus says another line. He says, you've made it a den of robbers. And we read this passage. I'm not going to read it again. We read this passage in Jeremiah um, where Jesus says, hey, you did all these bad things, and then you go back to the temple, and you're like, well, we're in the temple. We're okay. Ooh, okay. Hey, let's talk about it. What's a den? Like, um, okay, so like, I don't know, like a bear has a den, right? What does a bear do in its den? sleeps, right? Bears don't go out and eat animals in their den, right? They eat animals out there, and they come back and they take a nap. Um, does it, like, if a robber has a den, do they rob people in the den? No, like you go rob people on the streets and the, and the highways and the byways, you come back to your den to like take a nap and enjoy the fruits of your labor, right? So when Jesus says, you've made the temple a den of robbers, He's not saying the temple is a place where bad things are happening. He's saying you are bad people, and you're bringing your badness into the temple and thinking that because you're in your den, you're safe. Jesus says, hey, I am upset with like kind of everything you're doing. And you think that if you just kind of cover over what you're doing with the temple stuff, with like killing enough animals or like saying the right prayers or like being really, really into being Jewish, uh, then you can feel good about yourselves and everything will be fine. So, I think what Jesus is upset about is not what they're doing in the temple. He's upset about what they're doing everywhere else. He's upset that they think that they can do whatever they want, then come back to the temple, and a little bit of religion will cover it all over. And I think this is fundamentally Jesus' frustration, uh, that the religiousness of the people and their leaders divorced from real obedience to God and a heart for non-believers is actually making them worse, not better in God's eyes. We don't have a temple today, but boy, we have religion. We love religion. Religion is super fun. Religion is really easy to follow. Religion is, hey, here's the rules. If you obey the rules, you get good things. If you break the rules, you get bad things. And I think Jesus would say religion is like a vaccine that keeps you from getting infected with the gospel. Religion is um, the great enemy of the Christian faith. The, uh, oh, oh, this is fun too. Okay, so just check this out. Um, you are a regular person back in the ancient world, and something bad happens to you. You get sick. 
or uh, you have a financial problem and you're, you're in financial hardship, or maybe you have a child who's born with a defect, or um, maybe you get assaulted, anything, anything bad happens to you. In the ancient world, the religious leaders would say, hey, that happened to you because you did something bad, right? Because bad things happen to bad people and good things happen to good people. And so what you need to do is you need to go to the temple Hey, you poor person who's struggling with financial crisis because some rich person is oppressing you, go to the temple and then pay a whole bunch of money and get some animals and then sacrifice those animals. And then the people who are rich running the temple who told you this in the first place will get richer. And then you can feel a little bit better about yourself and be a little bit poorer, right? The, the whole system, this religiousness, is the opposite of Jesus' message, which is good news to the poor, which is that God loves the broken and the sick and the hurting, and that they are not being punished, but that God has come to rescue and redeem them. So, Jesus is saying, um, all of this stuff that you're doing, um, religion is the problem. I have come to deliver you. What kind of deliverance is this? It's not deliverance from Rome. It's deliverance from Jerusalem. By the way, this is um, still our great problem. I think the great problem in the Christian church has always been that religion is easier than the gospel. It's easy to explain. It's easy to understand. Do good, get good. Do bad, get bad, right? And so we just kind of like that idea, and we have been struggling for generations with how to recover from religion. Uh, C.S. Lewis um, uh, was, grew up in the church and then was an atheist for about uh, 25 years of his life. And uh, after he came back to faith, uh, later on his brother Warren wrote a little bit about Lewis's conversion process back to faith. And Warren Lewis said um, his brother's conversion was, quote, no sudden plunge into a new life, but rather a slow, steady convalescence from a deep-seated spiritual illness an illness that had its origins in our childhood and the dry husks of religion offered by the semi-political church-going of Ulster and the similar dull emptiness of compulsory church during our school days. In other words, he says, Lewis had to recover from religion to become a Christian. Religion is rules divorced from meaning. Religion is rules divorced from morality or obedience. Religion is rules divorced from love of neighbor. Religion is uh, the idea of karma and getting what you deserve. And it is the great danger of the Christian faith. Far more dangerous, I think, than its alternative, than immorality, than irreligion. Robert Louis Stevenson wrote a famous book called Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. You guys know Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde a little bit? Yeah, okay. So, quick reminder of the story. Uh, Dr. Jekyll is a more or less decent guy, but he recognizes that he has some sinful qualities in him, and he wants to get those out. So, he devises a potion that when he drinks it will separate his good from his bad. And he thinks, all right, I'll be like completely good. None of that bad tendency. I can do amazing things for people and for God. And then, you know, sometimes I'll be completely bad, but at least that'll be separate from my rest of my living. And so we know what happens. He drinks the potion and he becomes Mr. Hyde, right? Uh, and there's a, a great moment the first time he transforms into Mr. Hyde uh, where he says, I knew myself at the first breath of this new life to be more wicked 
tenfold more wicked, sold a slave to my original evil. And the thought in that moment braced and delighted me like wine. Edward Hyde's every act and thought centered on self. Pretty quickly, he discovers that the stuff that Mr. Hyde will do is so horrible, um, so much worse than he ever imagined, that he desperately wants to stop the transformations. So Mr. Je- uh, Dr. Jekyll stops taking the potion, uh, and he kind of gets religion. And he decides, hey, not only am I going to not take the potion anymore to transform into my other personality, but I'm also going to make up for all I did wrong. And so he begins to work overtime to help people and serve people and take care of the poor. And he is a doctor. He's doing medicine for free. And he really, really puts all this work into this process. Uh, and, And then a few months later, he's several months off his potion. He hasn't transformed uh, in, in several months. He's sitting on a park bench, and he says, I resolved in my future conduct to redeem the past, and I can say with honesty that my resolve was fruitful of some good. You know how earnestly in the last months of the last year I labored to relieve suffering. You know that much was done by me for others. But as I smiled, comparing myself with other men, comparing my active goodwill with the lazy cruelty of their neglect. At the very moment of that vain, glorious thought, a qualm came over me, a horrid nausea and the most dreadful shuddering. I looked down. I was once more Edward Hyde. See, originally he only transforms when he drinks the potion and goes off and does wicked, selfish, immoral things. But then he gets religion. He gets the rules, he gets proud, and then he starts transforming uncontrollably. The the idea being that what religion does for us, uh, the way it causes us to judge others, the way it causes us to to esteem ourselves, the way we begin to think uh, that we've got it all made and they're all broken is so much worse for us than the lack of religion. And this is really hard, guys, because we love it. It's so easy. Everybody likes a little bit of religion. Okay, let's talk about the fig tree. So, um, some of you guys out there are like on the fig tree advocacy group, right? I've had more people tell me how upset they are about the fig tree than you would ever believe. Like, how dare Jesus kill this poor… What did the fig tree ever do to him, right? Um, We're even told in this passage that the fig tree is not in the season of bearing figs, right? So, like, what do you expect, Jesus? It's not fig season. Um, Actually, it doesn't quite say that. We'll come back. Uh, what, what I think we are supposed to recognize uh, in this sandwiched passage is that the fig tree represents the temple and the practice of the Jewish faith apart from Jesus and His kingdom. The fig tree represents all of this religiousness. Now, by the way, this one line where it says it's not the season for figs, it actually says it's not the kairos. Kairos is a word that means opportune time. It's only used one other time in the Gospel of Mark up to this point, and that's in the very first chapter when Jesus says, uh, the kairos has come, the opportune time has come to proclaim the kingdom of heaven is at hand, right? Jesus is saying, hey, in this moment where the kingdom of heaven, where God has come to earth, 
I'm expecting you guys to be ready for me. I'm expecting you guys to have more interest than just religion. I want you to actually love God and love people. I want you to actually care about all of the things you're doing and why you're doing them. I don't want you to live your regular life and then paper it over by going to church on Sundays. I want you to change it all. I want you to have some fruit in your life. And the time is up for fruitless trees and fruitless people. And the time is up for graceless and faithless temples. And when Jesus says, this mountain, ooh, okay, we, uh, I know I wrote the prayer of confession. Forget the prayer of confession, it was terrible. When Jesus says, this mountain um, will be thrown into the sea if you have faith, He does not mean that you will have faith to do incredible things. He's not saying your faith will be strong enough to move mountains. He says, this mountain, meaning Mount Zion, on which the temple is built, You can overthrow the temple. You can overthrow the whole religious system. You can overthrow religion in general. That's what he's saying. He's saying, if you you follow me, I'm going to give you a new spiritual reality, not rooted in religion, not rooted in rules, not rooted in being better than someone else, not rooted in the us-them, rooted in faith and trust and forgiveness and me. Ooh, and access to God, right? That's what the temple was supposed to be about, right? Where you could go and meet with God. Jesus says, you don't need that anymore. If you've got me, you can just pray. Like wherever you are, pray, and God will hear you, and God wants to hear you. Not as a magic wand for self-fulfillment, and not as an angry God that has to be persuaded to begin to listen to you, but as a father who already wants good for you, right? God says, you just got to partner with me. It's about a relationship. The, the gospel is about this relationship with God through Jesus, and nothing else is needed. What kind of deliverance is this? Uh, I came across somebody who did uh, a little bit of the spoken word. You know, I love spoken word poetry. A little bit of the spoken word on this very topic, and I want to share that with you. See, the problem with religion is it never gets to the core. It's just behavior modification like a long list of chores. Like, let's dress up the outside, make it look nice and neat. But it's funny, that's what they used to do to mummies while the corpse rots underneath. Now I ain't judging, I'm just saying, quit putting on a fake look. Because there's a problem if people only know that you're a Christian by your Facebook. I mean, in every other aspect of life, you know that logic's unworthy. It's like saying you play for the Lakers just because you bought a jersey. See, this was me too but no one seemed to be on to me, acting like a church kid while addicted to pornography. See, on Sunday I'd go to church, but Saturday getting faded, acting if I was simply created to just have sex and get wasted. See, I spent my whole life building this facade of neatness, but now that I know Jesus, I boast in my weakness. Because if grace is water, then the church should be an ocean. It's not a museum for good people, it's a hospital for the broken, which means I don't have to hide my failure, I don't have to hide my sin it doesn't depend on me, it depends on Him. See, because when I was God's enemy, and certainly not a fan, He looked down and said, I want that man. Which is why Jesus hated religion, and for it He called them fools. Don't you see so much better than just following some rules? Now back to the point, one thing is vital to mention, how Jesus and religion are on opposite spectrums. See, one's the work of God, but one's a man-made invention. See, one is the cure, but the other's the infection. See, because religion says do, Jesus says done. Religion says slave, 
Jesus says, son. Religion puts you in bondage, while Jesus sets you free. Religion makes you blind, but Jesus makes you see. And that's why religion and Jesus are two different clans. Religion is man searching for God. Christianity is God searching for man, which is why salvation is freely mine and forgiveness is my own. Not based on my merits, but Jesus' obedience alone. So for religion, no, I hate it. In fact, I literally resent it. Because when Jesus said, it is finished, I believe he meant it. It's deliverance from petty nationalism and petty usism. It's deliverance from empty church attendants who had a life transformation. It's deliverance from lukewarm discipleship. It's deliverance from earthly glory. It's deliverance from our participation in systems of oppression. It's deliverance from earning our own salvation by being good enough, by following the rules, by making God love us. It's just the Christian practice of saying, Jesus, you are enough. Jesus, you have done it. Jesus came to deliver us from evil. The first evil He came to deliver us from was religion. Let's not go back to the temple, friends. Let's follow the gospel and follow the King. Thanks be to Him. Amen.